Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and click that subscribe button. We hope that you'll check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok and find out more about content. Of course, we encourage you to also check out the website at rayreynoldsrap.com. We hope you enjoy today's program. For our third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast, we've decided to do a couple of things that will help in you strengthening your own personal walk with God. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be very intentional in the way we present the gospel message. Uh, And we're hoping that through some of these lessons that you will have a desire to grow more spiritually. Uh, And to help us with that, we are going to deal with some tough questions. Uh, In some broadcasts, you'll hear me talking about subjects that maybe even your preacher or uh, Bible class teacher is afraid to to discuss because of the basically the sensitiveness of that particular lesson. And the second thing that we're doing is we are encouraging people to read their Bible all the way through. And so to help us with that, we are doing surveys of New Testament books. Some of the lessons will be one lesson. Some of them will be uh, two or three or four lessons, depending on the size of the book and the contents. But right now we want to present to you one of those lessons on a New Testament book. I encourage you to grab your Bible and study along. If you got a notepad, piece of paper, highlighter, that'll probably help as you begin to make notes and think about uh, how you want to read this book from cover to cover. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. So uh, last week in our our time together, we focused on the last little section of Acts 2. Yeah, you got a question, Ron, already? Yes. Yeah. It does. Right. Yeah, and, and what God's doing is he's, he's showing us how the new covenant breaks down those barriers. And the main thing, too, is to see why Peter wrestles with it. And I, I will argue, I think it's probably the case, that it wasn't so much that, that he has an issue with prejudice. I mean, I think he maybe wrestles with some of that according to Galatians. But I think the main reason that he struggled with this is because he was going with other Jews, And so though he felt God calling him to go and to teach Cornelius and his household, uh, he realizes there are Jews with him. And that's the first thing when he enters the door is, don't you know, we're not supposed to have associations with each other. Instead of coming in and saying, hi, I'm Peter to preach the gospel. Let's get right to it. Instead, he starts very differently. He actually, as he steps into the threshold of the door, starts a history lesson of why Jews and Gentiles don't get along. And that really is an odd way to start something. But I don't think that he's trying to pick on Cornelius. I just think he's trying to show to the other Jews around him that these are the things that the Lord was doing to break down these barriers to be able to reach Jews and Gentiles. Because remember, Peter in Acts 1 was there when, obviously, when Jesus said, you're going to go to Jerusalem and then to Judea and Samaria. That's the Samaritans. And then you're going to go to the end of the world. So you're going to reach all the Gentiles of the gospel. Peter already knew this is what was going to happen. But it's it's kind of like when you see something coming and you're like, I've prepared, I've prepared, but I haven't quite prepared for this. You know, we're going through that now, getting ready to graduate two seniors. 
And we just graduated one last year. We got two coming up here in just a few. They're going to be 19 in just a few weeks. We're, not, we were, we're prepared, but we're not prepared for that. You know what I mean? So sometimes you have something on the horizon. You know the date's coming. But then when it gets there, maybe it's a surgery or something like that. And you, you think, okay, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. But then when it happens, you kind of have to step back and go, okay, am I really prayed up and ready for this event? It seems that Peter... He was obviously uh, ready to go, but he still struggles with what others are going to see. And that's the reason why he calls the meeting in Acts, Acts 11, is to say, here's why we did what we did. But that's a great point. So let's start there in Acts 10 and see. Uh, did, we went through last week, didn't we, and talked about the tanner, Simon the tanner. Yeah, Simon is uh, a man who tans uh, animal hide, and that tells us that that. Peter was at least trying to get over some of his uncleanliness issues because they tanned animal hide with urine. And so the smell, the overwhelming smell at the house or near where the, 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 the uh, hides had been tanned, it would have been disgusting. So he's up, he's up on the rooftop. He's, he's away from that. But he's still having to come back and forth uh, to be in this household with this man who dealt with unclean things. I don't know if you ever dealt with taxidermy before. Uh, it's interesting. Um, I'm not really into all that. I have horns that are displayed, but that's it. I don't want the giant face of him with eyes looking at me like, you did this to me, buddy. That's fine. I'm all about uh, killing and eating. It's great, but I don't really want to look at him for the rest of my life. So uh, if you're into that, that's fine. But there is a a gift in that. And this man, Simon, was gifted in, in taxidermy and in dealing with the skins that they would have used for rugs and clothing. So when Peter goes to this house where Cornelius is, beginning uh, at verse 17, it says that he goes uh, and and Peter has been thinking about this vision. And then uh, it says in verse 10, behold, three men are seeking you. He's seen this vision. Arise, go down and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. So Peter gets the vision. He needs to go. But he also receives the vision that they're going to be these particular men. They're going to come and get him. So when Peter comes down, uh, beginning in verse 21, he goes down to the men. So he's up in the upper part. When, and when he gets there, it says, he says, yes, I am he whom you seek. For what reason have you coming? And they say, well, Cornelius, the centurion, a just man who fears God, a good reputation among the uh, nation of the Jews, was divinely instructed by a holy angel to summon you at this house and to, uh, or at his house, and to hear words from you. So he invited them in and lodged them, and then it says the next day he goes. So he takes these men with him, but he also takes some of the men from that uh, area. It says in verse 24, and the following day they entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met with him, and he fell down at his feet and worshipped him. Now that's, a, that's, a, that's an important part uh, John deals with this in Revelation, falling down at the foot of an angel. And Peter lifts him up. We're not supposed to worship men. We're not supposed to worship even great godly men. Uh, there are, there's a, a mindset now in a lot of churches where the man in the pulpit wears rings on each finger and a giant white cloth and a big collar on the neck and, and, uh, and dangles incense around him and... He's just holy, holy, holy. And that's just not, that's not what Peter saw as his role. He's an elder, a preacher, an apostle. You don't bow down and worship a man. John deals with that too in, in Revelation. So we need to be very careful. So he gets him up 
And it says, stand up. I myself am a man. And he talked with him. He went in and found many who had come together. Now, these are all more than likely Gentiles, just like Cornelius. It says, then he said to them, you know how unlawful it is for a Jewish man to keep company with or to go to one another's nation. Uh, But God has shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. So I... He understands his mission. Therefore, I came without objection. As soon as I was sent for, I asked then, for what reasons have you sent me? And then, of course, Cornelius tells the story. Four days ago, I was fasting about this hour. And then uh, the ninth hour, it says, I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing. That's the angel referred to previously. And it says, uh, he stood up before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard. That's important, too. People say, well, God doesn't hear the prayer of the unrighteous. Of course he does. God does not have a deaf ear. He hears all things. The question is, will it be answered? God chooses to answer the prayers that he wishes. The righteous, his ears are attuned to the prayers of the righteous. But he hears this man. He's earnestly seeking the will of God. And that's the reason why God hears him and he answers him. So just keep that in the back of your mind. It says also... um, Uh, Cornelius' prayer had been heard. Your alms have been remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon, that's Peter here, whose surname is Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. And when he comes, he'll speak to you. So I sent you immediately and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we're all present before God to hear all the things commanded to you by God. So he brings everybody in. Sets them down and he says, we're here to hear you. And this is something that every preacher dreams of is that you have an audience of people or even if it's just one individual that is so eager to hear the gospel message that they sit down, you know, with their Bibles and their notepads and they're just ready to go. It really helps helps you get into the fire of preaching and teaching. So Peter gets into his message and he talks about some of the differences between the Jews and the Gentiles and he talks about the. Uh, the word of God coming to the children of Israel. And then he talks to them about Jesus and tells them uh, all about, uh, and we have just a limited portion of it, but he gets into there towards the end. He says to him, all prophets witness that through his name, Jesus' name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. So while Peter's still speaking, the Holy Spirit is poured out on them. And it says those of the circumcision who believed were astonished. That's the Jews. As many as came with Peter. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had not been poured out on the Gentile, had, had now been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter says, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he's referencing Acts chapter 2. It says, And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. And then they asked him to stay a few days. Yeah, Ron? Okay. Mm-hmm. It's really strong because it says, John indeed baptized with water, mm-hmm. but he shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. That's correct, yeah. It is. And there's a difference between, even though uh, John baptized for mission of sins, uh, John did not baptize and they didn't, in a way that they would receive the Holy Spirit. That wouldn't be until after Pentecost. So the personal indwelling, or we would say the... Uh, the resurrection of the Spirit, as Paul puts it in Romans 8, comes... Now, now, now this also means that when we're baptized today, mm-hmm. we're baptized with the Holy Ghost. 
Yes, he, yes, we're baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And he enters us, according to Romans 8, he dwells inside of us. Paul says, if you want to be a child of God, you can't be a child of God unless the Spirit is in you. Um, and, of course, Jesus teaches this. There's other places that we can learn that. But the fact is, before the baptism of Acts chapter 2, they did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them. Now, a few weeks ago, I gave a very simple explanation of the difference between the natural gifts of the Holy Spirit and the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. Natural is a when you're a child of God, you simply bear fruit. You can't help it because you're attached to the vine. John chapter 15. And as you are attached to the vine, you bear the fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentle self-control, which we're talking about this year. It's a natural fruit of the Spirit. But for those who had the miraculous power of the Spirit, that's with the apostles touching them, they were able to, and it's separate and apart from the, the Spirit that we receive in baptism. The, it's still the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works miraculously as the apostles touched people. They were able to go out and do miracles. And what Peter says here, again, very interesting. But what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 is those miraculous gifts would eventually depart. And that's why he kind of builds up to a crescendo at the end of chapter 12. You're all part of the body of Christ. We're all arms. We're on feet. We're all part of the body. But he says in chapter 13 that as you're working in the body, what's the greatest What's the greatest virtue? What's the greatest part of the Spirit of God? Well, it is love. Isn't it interesting? The first part of the fruit of the Spirit. Love is more valuable. It's it's not just a natural fruit that you bear as a Christian. It it shows the sign of maturity. And so he says, you know, we were a child. We spoke like a child. We talked like a child. We act like a child. Kids are kids. Immaturity of the church needed those miracles to be able to grab people's attention and say something amazing was happening. The reason why those miraculous gifts dissipated is because the church reached full maturity. And we shouldn't have to go out here and do all these things to get the attention of others. That was for the Jews. They sought after a sign where the Gentiles sought after knowledge. And so as the Bible is put into a canon and we begin to preach and teach, uh, what God does now is, I, will, I argued a few weeks ago that it is much more important, much more valuable uh, to bear natural fruit, to be who you are called to be. Uh, we don't need all of those miraculous gifts. Would it be really nice to raise the dead? Absolutely. We'd love to do that. But God chose to use that only for that limited time while the apostles and those that they touched were living to start the early church. Kind of like when you get ready to drive your car and uh, you go to drive it and it's dead. You got to get a jump on your car to get going. And then you take it somewhere and get it fixed, right? You know, hopefully you don't just drive around and wait for it to die again. But in the church, we needed a jump start. And so he sends his Holy Spirit through the hands of the apostles. And they begin to do these miracles to get the attention of the Jews. To say, Jesus truly is the Son of God. Jesus could do the miracles. And we can too. But as he says in chapter 13, that would fade away. Prophecies would cease. Those things would all come to an end. Uh, and that's where we reach full maturity. Where the church begins to grow and preach the gospel. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I did a better job of explaining it a few weeks ago. But um, it is a great, a great study. So Peter baptizes these individuals. And then it tells us that in chapter 11, he and the other apostles have to get together to discuss it. And it's because this was a turning point in the history of the church. This, these things that are taking place reveal, and remember Peter has the keys. He preaches the sermon on Pentecost. He has the keys, and so he opens up the doors, if you will, spiritually speaking, 
to those that are Gentiles. And he tells him the whole story. Look, I didn't just go to the Gentiles. The Lord came to me in a vision. He said, I heard the voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat, verse 7. And, and, he, and then he, of course, uh, says, no, I'm not going to do it three times. But the voice answered, verse 9, from heaven, what God has cleaned or cleansed, you must not call common. And he started his sermon with Cornelius explaining that. And so as he tells this story, by the end of this chapter, he convinces the crowd that uh, what he did was a good thing. And I don't think that they're trying to persecute Peter. I just think they want to know the whole story. This is before the Internet. This is before television and radio and anything like that. So if you wanted to get the news on whatever was going on, you better go and be in an assembly of some kind. So all these men are gathered and they said, tell us the story. What happened? And he begins to, uh, to teach and he tells them, you know, I, I, you know, John baptized with water, but uh, you shall baptize with the Holy Spirit, verse uh, 16. And so he said, if God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand against God or withstand God? And when they heard these things, they became silent and then they glorified God. They, it says, then God has also granted the Gentiles repentance to life. So they begin to go out and tell people that the gospel is not just for the Jews. And this shows a change, an important change in the history of the church, because it was almost exclusively people that were of the Jewish faith. There are some Judeans and Samarians, of course, Samaritans that are mentioned there in chapter 8. But majority of the Christians in this area were all born and raised Jews. And, uh, and even the Samaritans had a form, we would argue, kind of a, a somewhat of a form of uh, Judaism, even though they worshipped in a different place and did it differently. But the fact is, uh, Peter, Peter tells them God has done all this. God has done it. And, uh, and they finally, after a moment of silence, it says, praise God for it. And they, they were excited to know that God had now brought the gospel to the Gentiles. With this change, as I said, it, it, it moves them into a new arena. It's great to be able to preach the gospel to the Gentiles, but we might ask the same question that is asked to uh, Isaiah, is who will go? Who will go? Uh, there's going to be a day coming, and maybe in our near future, that uh, there are nations now that are at war with other nations on this planet that we will have an opportunity to go in and preach the gospel in just a few years. But would you go? Would you go? I had a friend who signed up to go and be a missionary in Afghanistan after, uh, this was about four years ago. And uh, they went in and was there, I guess, a year or two years and came back. I, I, you, I would not. I could not. I have a lot of faith. I believe I have a lot of faith. But man, who would want to go knowing that you're in harm's way every single day? Uh, if you could get on a helicopter, or a plane right now, and you go and be dropped off into some war zone to just preach the gospel, would you do it? Now, I understand that the Gentiles were not violent people, but these are people you've been taught your whole life to stay away from. It was not going to be an easy task for the apostles to do this. So God needed someone who could, uh, who is specially formed and, and purpose given a challenge to do this, and that's Saul of Tarsus. So Barnabas, who's in this meeting, who remembers that just a few verses ago in chapter, chapter 9, uh, Paul was rejected. 
the apostles would not accept him in Jerusalem. They said, you need to go back home. So he went back to Tarsus and lived. And now Barnabas is going to recall him. If we're supposed to take the gospel to the Gentiles, who's going to go? And Barnabas says, I know exactly the guy. And he goes and gets him. Now, Barnabas has a lot of finances. He's a rich guy. He makes sure and and helps Paul to get this done. But they are walking in faith. He is the son of encouragement. This is the guy who wants to build up a lot of people in the church. And so when they get together uh, in Antioch, they begin to make their plan. Where are they going to go? What are they going to do? And they start off by taking relief and aid to those in Judea. Uh, We find a little... uh, section here in chapter 12 about some persecution, but we understand that Paul and Barnabas, Saul and Barnabas at this time, are about to go and embark in something amazing. And you have a chapter here to think about it. So we're thinking, where are they going to go? What are they going to do? They're making their game plan for these missionary journeys. Now, chapter 12, there's, there's three main things that, that can't be missed. Um, the first thing that needs to be noted is the persecution against the church leads to the death of James. That's uh, John's brother, son of Zebedee. And so when James is killed, we've lost an apostle. Now, what did they do in Acts chapter one? When an apostle died, Judas, what did they do? They cast lots, right? They replaced him. Now, I'm not going to say that that's exactly what happened, but it seems to be that as soon as an apostle uh, is taken out, is, is murdered, on, on comes Saul. And Saul is going to call himself an apostle. And he's given that charge by God. We can argue that from Acts 9. But also throughout his ministry, he'll tell more things that prove his apostleship. But uh, James dies, and then now Paul surges to the front as a leader. And when he brings him back, I think about this frequently. I, I know that I probably, you're, you're probably like me, you, you think about things and you go, does anybody else think about this stuff? But I have often thought what that conversation was like when Barnabas sends for Saul. If he was so dejected that uh, he said, I'm not going to do it. I think when he got the call, he was eager to get to work. He, he had that vision from Jesus. He was eager to get to work. So when he calls him and they begin to do these, uh, this plan, this mission effort, uh, it really, a lot of the encouragement, too, comes from the church in Antioch. This was a church that really understood how to send out missionaries. And we'll see that as we move forward through some of these stories. But Paul, uh, as, he, as he comes back to help Barnabas, is going to uh, begin a mission journey in chapter 13. But let me deal with the other two things. So the first thing is James dies. Peter's going to uh, stay in prison, but James dies. And Peter then is freed from prison. And uh, it says that uh, he, he goes, and some of you remember the story Billy talked about the, the greatest, uh, what is it, Paul's, or Peter's finest hour. Isn't that it, Billy? Peter's finest hour. Uh, he comes and he knocks on the, on the door here, uh, and Rhoda is a little bit confused. She, she hears his voice, and she goes back and challenges. This is, a, remember, a prayer meeting where they're praying for his release, and then he's released, and they can't believe God answered the prayer, which is kind of interesting. But it says, they said to her, uh, you're beside yourself. And she kept insisting it was so, that it was Peter. And they said, well, maybe it's his angel. And, and now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door, they saw him and were astonished. And so this is, this is a, a very awesome miracle. And then the next part is Herod finally is punished for all of his wickedness. And it tells us that Herod had been angry with the people at Tyre and Sidon. 
Uh, and they came to him with one accord, having made Blastus, the king's personal aide, their friend. They asked for peace because their country was supplied with food, the king's country. So uh, on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, uh, gave an oration, gave speech to him. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. And that's dangerous, too, when you start equating a king with God powers, which is what they did for the Caesars. Verse 23, and immediately an angel of the Lord struck him and he did not because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Very graphic, terrible way to die. It said, but the word of the word of God grew and multiplied. So Herod finally is out of the picture. Now, as we move forward through this, we're going to see some of Herod's relatives that are also on the throne in his place. And they play a part in Paul's Paul's story as well. But this kind of puts a bookend, if you will, to Peter's ministry. Uh, He's only mentioned a couple times after this. Uh, Peter's going to be busy in Jerusalem. He'll eventually head to Rome, but he's doing his thing. And Luke, the writer of the book, is going to follow Paul because he he ministered with Paul. And he did work with Paul, as we see moving on through uh, chapter 16. So let's go to these uh, mission journeys. How many of you remember... Uh, there's actually three, and I'll get to those in a minute. How many of you remember seeing these maps in the back of your Bibles as a kid? Did you ever take your finger and follow them each time? I, I remember I had a teacher that put a map up in our classroom, and all four of the journeys were together, just like this. And so you'd pick your color, and you go, okay. I'm going to use the black one for the first one. You can start over here and hang out and then you come around and say, okay. And then you do the second journey and you take the blue line and you follow all these places where he went. And uh, it's really neat. I don't know who originally designed some of these, but they're fantastic. But I am uh, a simple person, a simple creature, and I often get confused. And so I look for the maps where there's only one at a time. So let's do one at a time. All right. So let's start with the first missionary journey in chapter 13. And 14. So the Holy Spirit sets Paul and Barnabas apart to be missionaries. Chapter 13, 1 through 3. And as that happens, they begin to go out and start doing uh, kingdom work. This is establishing churches, uh, preaching the gospel. And if there are Christians there, which you see a couple times in Acts, they will really lift them up and encourage them. Uh, We see that Paul also took the charge personally that if you went to a city and they needed leaders, he would appoint elders. In fact, it says that was his practice in every city he went. He knew that the apostles were going to die out and whether or not the minister was able to go and travel, they needed shepherds. Every church needs strong shepherds. So Paul uh, does that along this journey. So there's several things that he does, but let's go through and talk about some of these places. So he starts off at Antioch of Pisidia, Uh, And then in chapter 13, chapter 14, he's going to go to Iconium. He's going to go to uh, Lystra. He's going to go to Derbe and do mission work. And then in Lystra, there's this lame man that's healed and causes a little bit of a stir. And so they head back to Antioch at the end of chapter 14. In this trip, as you can see the little arrows here on the map, uh, they made a nice little circle. And as they made this trip, the Bible tells us that they took with them John Mark. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, he gets homesick, wants to go back home. Uh, they have to take and pay for his voyage back to, um, to Antioch and eventually to Jerusalem. 
That becomes a very important detail in the next story. But John Mark is related to Barnabas, probably a nephew, could be a cousin, it's unclear. But they were very close relatives. And Barnabas thought of John Mark like his own son. And so he wanted to take him along. So when John Mark quits and leaves early, remember this is who writes the book of Mark. Quits and leaves early, John Mark's willing to forgive, or I mean, pardon, Barnabas is willing to forgive that, their family. You know, you forgive each other. But Paul worries about the image that it leaves on the churches. When we see him in chapter 15, they have this big unity meeting and decide to go back out and do missions again. The goal is to go back to the same churches. And this, this is the way I always explain it to people. Is that it, imagine you are going to take a business trip. And the business trip, you call ahead and six or seven stops. You say at each stop, we need three rooms. We need food for three people. And we need to be able to have visits and things done for three people. You show up there. Everything's been prepared for three people. And there's only two. Well, what are you going to do when that happens? Have you ever had that happen before? Somebody comes to your house and say, how many of you are coming to dinner? Oh, there's just a couple of us. And it ends up being five. And you go, oh my goodness. I didn't know there was this many people. And the neighbor comes over. And then the, somebody else shows up. And you're sitting here looking around trying to throw something together to eat. It's rude. It's rude. It's rude to tell people we're coming with this big party and to tell everybody, by the way, we got this young man coming and he's so as they make this trip. And another thing, too, if those cities did not know John Mark was coming, they would have said, as you do in conversation, you know what? We were back in Lystra and we, we, we was that before John Mark left or after oh, it was after he left. OK, so we, we did this great. And so Paul's telling stories about with John Mark and then a whole lot of stories about without John Mark. So what's the question? What happened to John Mark? It's like, where's Waldo? Where'd he go? What happened? Where is he? And so Paul is already persecuted. Paul already is under suspicion. Many of the Jews question whether or not he was really converted to Christ. So he had the Jews that were against him and Christians that were against him. So if you've ever been in a situation, have you, to- have you ever told your spouse you know, please don't do that. Don't embarrass me tonight. Don't, please don't, don't. You tell your kids, don't you? Would you be on your best behavior, please? I don't, this is my boss. Would you please, you know what I'm saying? So if John Mark isn't there, and then all of a sudden they go back, chapter 16 and 17, to the same churches, and he is there, why is he here now? Isn't this the guy that left? So Paul is trying to avoid any conflict whatsoever, And that's why there's a problem in chapter 15. But John Mark leaves and we don't want to hold that account, hold hold him to too much of an account because he does a lot of great work. But um, but for whatever reason, Paul says, I I just would rather him not come along. And maybe the only reason Barnabas did because he's family, but it may be that he saw good in him. I'm going to argue that he saw a lot of good in John Mark. And later, Paul does, too. So the second missionary journey and some of you have, maybe in your Bibles, these different maps. This helps me. The first thing it says is they meet in the Jerusalem Council. Now, the first meeting we read about is in chapter 11, when uh, they meet together in Jerusalem. They talk about uh, going out and doing mission work, uh, and they divide up and end up sending Paul and Barnabas. 
Now, as they meet in chapter 15, they go over and talk about, again, same same stuff about the apostles being uh, or pardon me, the Gentiles being involved. So what happens is now that the Gentiles are coming in, the Jews say, well, we'll let them in. But they're going to have to be circumcised. Well, that's going to that's going to probably hurt your evangelistic efforts. So they decide to have a meeting about it. It says now in verse 6, the apostles and elders came together for this matter. And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the Lord and believe, or word of gospel and believe. This is both to him, preaching to Cornelius, and also he's recognizing the apostleship of Paul, because Paul was called to do this. So, so God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit. That's the, um, those at Cornelius' house. Just seated to us, Acts chapter 2. And made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples? He's talking about those that are going out and going and preaching. Which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. And then all the multitude kept silent. We've seen this before, right? They all have to sit and think about it. And then it says, they listened to Barnabas and Paul declare how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And they had become silent. James answered saying, this is the brother of Jesus, half brother of Jesus. It says, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name, a new nation, if you will, a new kingdom. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I'll return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even the Gentiles were called by name says the Lord who does all these things. And so he continues his speech. James basically sets the record straight. And it tells us that they write this decree. And this is the writing that is given to us. Uh, Some people call it the the letter. Uh, My Bible calls it a decree. But it says they wrote this letter. The apostles, the elders, and the brethren. To the brethren who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment, by the way, it seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that you abstain from things offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well, farewell. So a couple things to note. First of all, all of the apostles and the elders that were present were in full agreement And he says, we have never commanded that you follow the Old Testament. 
We have never commanded, you've never heard it from us say that you must keep the old law in order to be a New Testament Christian. And by laying down these rules, he says, not only are we decreeing, remember this is James, the half-brother of Jesus. His name carries weight, not because he's the half-brother of Jesus, but because he doubted that Jesus was the Messiah. And he, after he's appeared to, 1 Corinthians 15, says Jesus went and saw James. James' conversion is so powerful that if people say, well, there, there are a lot of guys that didn't accept him. Like who? James' brother. Well, what is he doing now? He's a faithful, loyal disciple and an apostle. He's, he's a leader of the church in Jerusalem. Well, give me another example. Saul of Tarsus, killing Christians, having them persecuted, thrown into jail. What do you know about him? Well, he converted to Christ. So all these stories are beginning to spread. So they knew James by reputation, not as a brother of Jesus, but as a great leader of the church. And so he says, this is what I'm saying to you. The other thing here, this is important to note. We're going to send some people to visit with you. Who are the people? Two teams. Team number one. Sounds like a draft, doesn't it? Team number one. Barnabas and Saul or Paul. So we're going to send out these letters and somebody's going to follow. Well, guess what? There's a conflict between them. And the conflict separates the mission team. Barnabas and Paul have to separate as a result of it, the conflict over John Mark. But they come back, they pray together and go out on their missionary journey. Barnabas takes John Mark. So they still have two mission teams. It's just that instead of Judas on one, it seems that John Mark went. And on Paul's team, you have Silas who moves over from team number two. And so there's this kind of switching around, but good still done. The devil wants us to think sometimes when we make big plans that uh, if it doesn't go exactly the way we think that we should, we ought to just throw in the towel and quit. I've seen uh, congregations that have come back from the pandemic and said, we've only got 10 people here. We've only got 15 people here. No, you've got 10 people or 15 people. Uh, We start off and it's small in number, but we'll get back to where we were. We'll get there. You don't just quit just because things are tough. And so they go, even though, again, Paul doesn't like to be embarrassed, he does this and great things come from this second missionary trip. Their dedication to the gospel and to preaching to these people was more important than a simple conflict over who should go. Uh, Now, Paul says there's two coming and guess what? There's two coming. It's just not the two that they had intended to bring. So after this, they go back out into the mission field. And if you can see on the map, they go to Achaia and Philippi. Philippi, of course, is a very important church in the New Testament. We're going to study it all through this month on Sunday mornings in our series on joy. Then they go to Thessalonica, which is obviously the first and second Thessalonians are written to them. Uh, They go to Berea. This is another group of people very dedicated uh, to following the will of God and reading scripture. Uh, Notice as the letter is written, it says we all got together and we decided to write this letter to you in chapter 15. Some of these letters in our New Testament were being penned at about this time. So Paul is is taking an opportunity to write and so are some others. They go to Athens in chapter 17. And it's really by the providence of God that Paul has to wait for just a little while. And I mentioned a few weeks ago in our series of Between the Testaments There were a lot of places that had uh, idols up. 
places of worship, temples. Those play a big part in New Testament Christianity. Because when you went to visit a town, uh, it didn't matter whether you were holding their money or if you were in their city square, you knew who the city was dedicated to or you knew the God that that city worshipped or the emperor, for instance, with the Caesars. It's interesting that all seven churches of Asia in Revelation all had temples to Caesars. I think that's an important part of the interpretation of Revelation. But when he's in Athens, Paul finds out about this Group that's meeting. And this is something that's very, uh, very common, very common, is that they would have uh, philosophers meet in one location and teach. I, I did a, an article back uh, about four years ago or five years ago on Paul the philosopher. And it's probably, I don't know how many of you even be interested in it, but Paul quotes a ton of philosophy. In his writings. And these would have been books that he, re- he, he had read in, at university. And there are times that Paul uses words and phrases that they are so impressive from a philosophical point of view that they were attracted to his speech and to his preaching. And so Paul finds his way to the podium to speak at a pagan lectureship. And as he begins to speak, he doesn't talk about the gods by name, but he says, I want to point out one God here, and that is the unknown God, the, the, the God just to cover all the other bases if we've missed one. And he begins to show them that the one God that they know is the God of all, the only God, and has a magnificent sermon in Acts 17. Uh, and at the end of it, it says that there were people that said, we want to hear you a little bit more. Some didn't, but some did. And so he begins to continue to preach and teach there in Athens while he's waiting on a boat. And it's really interesting, uh, the things that he says in his speech, because he will use, Paul does quite frequently use Epicurean philosophy. Uh, he quotes from, uh, from Socrates, Plato. He does that a lot in his writings. Thank you for tuning in to the Ray Reynolds Wrap Podcast, and specifically this study of New Testament books. If you have a specific Bible question that relates to the material we just covered, please feel free to email me that at rayreynoldswrap at gmail.com. We want to encourage you to tune into every broadcast, follow us on social media, and get regular updates on the content. Follow, subscribe, share, and set your notifications so you don't miss any broadcasts or blogs that are posted. Check out the website for free books and Bible study materials at rayreynoldswrap.com. Hope you have a wonderful day, and may the Lord bless you as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible correspondence course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.